Sarah. Hi, Allison. So let's start the program talking about France and Africa. There's a long and complicated relationship between France and its former colonies on the African continent. Yeah, I remember Emmanuel Macron, just before he became president, he made it clear he was going to shake things up. He said colonization was a crime against humanity. Yeah, and he's made some moves in that direction to sort of back up what he's saying, apologies and programs and stuff. But it really is hard for France to extricate itself from its longstanding and often kind of shady relationships with its former colonies. Every few years, France hosts or attends a France-Africa summit. Last week was the latest edition in Montpellier in the south of France. These meetings started in the early 70s. And they've been long seen as a continuation of what we call France-Afrique. This is the networks of uh, influence that France has in its former African colonies. Mm -hmm. But things are shifting a bit. France's influence is not as strong as before. I mean, we can see that in the Sahel. Mm. Uh, France has waged a military campaign against insurgents there since 2014. Now that France is reorganizing, i.e. pulling out troops, calling on more European support, a Russian mercenary group is hoping to step into the vacuum. Yeah, allegedly. Mm -hmm. There are also tensions with Algeria. Uh, there's been a diplomatic fallout over Macron's comments about the current government and a decision by France to slash the number of visas for Algerians and other Maghrebi countries to push them to do more to stop illegal immigration to Europe. Yeah, so lots going on there internationally and, and changes too in this summit. Um, for the first time since they were first held, there were no African leaders in attendance. Hmm. Instead, there were hundreds of young people from Africa's civil society, um, a move away from obsolete formulas and networks, as France put it before the summit. And to some extent, it was a move away. There was a lot of frank talk, uh, parole franche, as they put it, about France's relationship with African countries. Here's Ragni Wende Elda Kowama, an entrepreneur from Burkina Faso. She's 27 years old and had some strong words to say to Macron. If the relationship between African countries and France was a cooking pot, the cooking pot would be very dirty. It is dirty with corruption. It is dirty with a lack of transparency. It is dirty with demeaning words. Mr. President, I invite you to scrub it clean with concrete actions. If you refuse to clean it, I will not eat out of it. We will not eat. Africa will no longer eat. You would be the only one at the table. Yeah, what a performance, eh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, very yeah. very strong uh, strong speech. Yeah, yeah, and you can hear the audience responded quite well there too. Um, the Cameroonian intellectual Achille Mbembe prepared a report for Macron that he gave him at the summit and it says that France is too disconnected from what African youth are doing. And it also said that France's support for tyranny on the continent is one of its most corrosive influences. One example is Chad. So following the death of the country's six-term president, Idris Deby, this past spring, um, Deby was a longtime French ally, Macron immediately gave his support to the military junta set up by Deby's son. Though he was then convinced to change his mind and then insist on a civilian unity government and elections. So shifting alliances there away from the strongman. But back to the summit, what, what can we expect to come out of it without the leaders? Yeah, it's unclear, right? I mean, is it just words? Critics say that's really what it is, a way to placate young people, giving them a chance to talk to Michael, but nothing much will come of it. 
that we'll have to see. But there were some announcements on some specific topics, and there were some breakout panels on different topics. For example, one devoted to the restitution of art, so lots of objects that were taken, looted, essentially, by Europeans colonizing Africa in the 18th and 19th, even 20th century. Many of these objects are in museums across Europe. Here in France, notably, it's the Quai Branly here in Paris. Our colleague, Laura Angela Bagnetto, who's the host of the Africa Calling podcast, was at the summit. And she says the panel, which lasted about three hours, was attended by curators from the Cape Holly and other European museums. And there is a lot of criticism of France, which has made promises to return objects. Back in 2017, Macron said that returning objects was a top priority mm -hmm. and that African objects can't be prisoners of European museums, is what he tweeted. The panel agrees with him there, but the panel was saying, you know, France is dragging their feet. Mm -hmm. um, this, he commissioned yeah, where, where it. are the objects? Why aren't they sent back? They're it, still in the French museum. Exactly. So there, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of objects from Africa in French museums and collections. Um, specifically, you know, what are we talking about. Well, I mean, the most famous um, are the Benin bronzes, um, mm. more than a thousand plaques, um, and they decorated a palace in the Kingdom of Benin, which is now Nigeria. These pieces And it was are, taken right during the colonial wars by the British. Exactly. Yeah. So this is not to do with France. Right. Um, but it's still one of the sort of the iconic things when you talk about art restitution. Mm -hmm. It's always about Benin bronzes, Benin bronzes, you know. Right. So, and most of those are in the British Museum right now. Yes. Yeah. There was a German um, art curator on the panel, and and she said that they have been actually meeting with the kingdom um, of Benin to discuss what they could do. And because they've had a fruitful discussion, they're actually returning stuff by the end of 2022, which is a big deal. Mm -hmm. What so, about what about France? What is, you know, when we're talking about French objects, what are they? Well, you know, th there was a lot of feet dragging, but um, Macron actually stopped by the panel and he made an announcement mm. that France would be returning 26 pieces called the Treasure of Behazin that were looted in 1892 from a palace, which is now in Benin and are now in the Quai Branly Museum here mm. in Paris. So France will be returning these. By the end of the month, oh. this is what he said. Okay. This is something, though, that was voted on last year by French MPs, and they said, yes, let's go ahead, and it was supposed to happen this year. So we'll see if it actually yeah. happens. Yes. But so we're talking about these are, these, are, these are precious objects. These are worth a lot of money. But I imagine this isn't everything in the museums. No, no, no. All these things are not all displayed as well. I spoke to a Nigerian cultural historian, Oluwata in Sobgason, who says that precious objects are one thing, but there's so many other things in French and European museums. You can tell how many thousands of non-iconic objects from fish traps to spares to bows to arrows to pots to calabash. It's in their thousands. We need to move our, our attention away from the iconic Benin bronzes to the everyday object that tells the story of who and what Africa stands for. Well, okay, so well, it seems, though, in general, in Europe, the attitudes and perspectives are changing. There's an admission that there is looted art and objects and that maybe they should be returned in some way or another. Um, and at least some of them are going back, at least the big ones, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there is a shift, although it might be coming too late for some people, including Dr. Sogbesan. France is yet to do 
what they actually started. So um, Macron kind of kick-started this in 2017, and 2017 till now, you would have expected there to be a longer list, you would have expected them to have taken account of what's in the museums or in the storage. So it's a willingness to return. Mm -hmm. um, but all this is still very Eurocentric because Africa as a continent is yet to feel it and yet to receive the objects. There's continuing debates about how things should be returned or restituted. Um, I mean, some are talking about they should be returned to African countries or they could be returned but could be left in Europe on permanent loan. Mm, like they own it and maybe own the proceeds that come from showing them, but they're still in Europe in the museums, that kind of thing. Exactly. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. and um, and others would be returned to the continent and displayed on the continent. Yeah, well, so, but, I mean, the idea of bringing them or sending them back, critics say it won't work, right, that some countries aren't equipped with the right museums, or they're not stable enough to protect the objects. There's and no air conditioning. <laughs> how founded is that criticism? The whole idea of a museum, where you look at things in glass boxes, is a Western colonial concept. Mm. This is exactly what a Dr. Sogbasan told me. Where were the objects before they were collected, stolen, or pillaged? Uh, they were with Africans. The Africans know how to use them because some of these objects were not just art objects that you see as art. They were objects that represent culture, represent identity, and represent history. So taking that away from the people is actually leaving them without history. Yeah, so that is what it's about, mm -hmm. isn't it, Sarah? This losing this connection to history. Yeah, and and pride, right? Owning the objects of your ancestors. Um, some are saying that there might be some sense in keeping some of these objects in Europe. You know, with all of the Africa diaspora living here, they can have access and exposure to their own culture. But ultimately, wherever these objects end up, however they're displayed, it really should no longer be up to France to decide. so Sarah, this is the much-loved singer-poet Georges Brassens with L'Auvergne. It was inspired by his own story of being welcomed by a couple when he was penniless. They opened their door, they fed him. It's a song about generosity, about welcoming the other. Yeah, topical today, right, with all the debates over immigration. Yeah, and a lot of Brassens' songs are still topical, a hundred years after he was born, on the 22nd of October, 1921. And France is marking that anniversary with lots of exhibitions and tributes. The song is one of 150 he wrote in uh, his 40-year career. Yeah, so this is the guy who's often photographed with a pipe and a guitar and a cat. <laughs> that famous one, the Siamese with the cross eyes. Yeah, I knew you'd like that. Indeed, <laughs> the image of him is a bit cuddly, a bit mm. of your sort of favourite uncle. Uh, he was from the town of Set in the south of France. He moved to Paris after deserting the army and was taken in first by his aunt, then by a couple in a flat with no electricity or plumbing. So he had a very 
humble existence. He's been called the French Woody Guthrie, you know, a sort of working class musician, a self-proclaimed anarchist. He preferred to spend a lot of time by himself on his own. And of course, he was rarely seen without his guitar. And above all, he had a real way with words, massive use of wordplay in all of his songs. M- making them, I imagine, kind of difficult, a bit of a challenge to translate. Indeed. Um, although many of them have been, mm. uh, he's really popular and he is the most covered French artist in the world, apparently. Yeah, and I mean, even here, songs are studied in school. Yeah, which might seem a bit surprising when you look at the subject matter. <laughs> As the curator of a big exhibition about Brassens a decade ago told me, most of his songs are about naked women, death and cats. And there's that famous one that combines them, right? Uh, Brave Margot. Quand Margot dégraffait son corsage pour donner la Yes, Margot draws big crowds in the village by breastfeeding her cat. Surprisingly, perhaps, the song didn't get banned, but Le Gori, an anti-death penalty song featuring a gorilla who loses its virginity with a judge, and Mauvaise Reputation, Bad Reputation, about deserting the army, were both banned from the airwaves in the early 50s, which of course made uh, made it sure they would become popular. Yeah, that's true. So a singer using wordplay, kind of folksy approach, kind of raunchy subjects. What makes these songs so exportable? Well, as the curator said, Brassens is everything you can expect from a Frenchman, sexually <laughs> obsessed, always eating and drinking and using a lot of rude words. <laughs> Going with the stereotypes there. It is a bit of a stereotype, <laughs> but he was a lot more than that. He wrote about France in maybe a superficially simple way, but actually in, in quite a deep way. He wrote about friendship, death, sex, uh, the church, the military. And one of his most poignant songs, for me anyway, is La Non-Demande en Mariage, the non-marriage proposal, in which he both declares his love for a woman, but also shows that you don't have to get married or have kids. He does have a certain way of talking about women. It's true that sometimes um, it ruffles a few feathers. He's <laughs> taught, for example, about how the wind gave him an excuse to look up a woman's skirt. But in the case, for example, of the non-demande en mariage, it's also a tribute to women's liberation, not just men's. Mm. Uh, there's another song called The Saturne. It's about a, how a woman can be just as beautiful at 40 with grey hair than when she's young. That's a song that definitely speaks to me. <laughs> Um, he also defended prostitutes. Some of them actually wrote him publicly to thank him. Yeah, lots of social commentary there then. Yeah, he was a genuine free spirit. And that's something the French were and still are very attracted to. His song, for example, Mourir pour ses idées, To Die for Your Idea, still rings a lot of bells. Uh, it talks about fundamentalism, about people who are willing to die for their ideas. But it's also an attack on those who force others to die. So in a way, it's an anti-military song. But as ever, it's not in your face. It's not all this is what you've got to think. Everything Mm. is veiled in poetry. It's rather suggestive. And I guess that's why he got away with writing about very some very sensitive subjects, you know, sexual assault, unusual relationships with animals, the church. (laughs) And the French will still sit down and sing those songs at family reunions today. Pauvre roi Pharaon, pauvre Napoléon, pauvre grand disparu gisant au Panthéon, Pauvre cendre de conséquence, vous en virez un peu l'éternel estivant qui fait du pédalo sur la vague en rêvant, qui passe sa mort en vacances. 
And this song, which translates as plead to be buried on the beach at Set, where Brassens looks forward to his own end, humbly, back in his hometown among friends and not stuck out in the Pantheon. Well, it gives us a timely transition to our next subject, Sarah. Mm. Have you ever thought much about the end of your own life, especially if you were terminally ill or had a degenerative disease? Well, I mean, the question has been asked, you know, when you're doing things like writing wills and that kind of thing. And I'm somebody who... Um, who's always wanted to live to be 120. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of course, obviously, that really depends on the state of health. And um, definitely, there have been discussions about what will happen. But um, I thought a little bit about it. But why is this? Yeah, well, because a recent film got me thinking about all of this, as it did a lot of other people in France. It's called Tout s'est bien passé, Everything Went Fine. And it's based on a true story. Sophie Marceau plays the daughter of a famous French art collector, André Bernheim, who suffered a bad stroke aged 88. Your father might not be able to speak or feed himself, the doctor tells Marceau. I want you to help me die, the old man tells his daughter. In France, it's not possible, she says. What do we do, he asks. There's an association in Switzerland. We have to go there, she explains. Can we set the date? How about March, he suggests. It's the week of my birthday, says his other daughter. In the end, after a lot of heartache and plenty of drama, he manages to get what he wants. But the film raises a lot of issues about how to deal with such a request and the obstacles in France, which are still very much there. Sarah, there have been a number of attempts to get assisted suicide legalised in France and surveys have shown that up to 90% of the population are in favour for the terminally ill, but it's never got voted. Mm, there have been some pretty high-profile cases. And recently, it's Alain Cook, who was terminally ill in great pain and went on a hunger strike to try to get the law changed. And he appealed publicly to President Macron, but there was nothing to be done there. And in the end, he went to Switzerland where doctors helped him die. Like many do, mm. if they can afford it, because it's not cheap, costs around 10,000 euros. The majority of people here will have to settle for what France offers, which is a form of passive euthanasia whereby doctors can put terminally ill patients under very deep sedation until they pass away. It means that you'd have to wait until you're on death's door, basically, and not everyone wants to reach that point. Many of the pleasures I used to have are reduced, like uh, eating a good meal. I can't because I get a stomachache if I eat a lot. I can only eat very little at a time. Uh, I can't get drunk because it gives me a headache. You'll tell me these are not very important pleasures, but they are pleasures. Uh, forget about sex unless I want to pay for it, which I don't. I still have the pleasure of walking. You know, I can do stuff like that. I'm not even complaining. I'm very grateful for the life I had. I just would like it to end. I would like to be able to to depart in a dignified way, yes. Elegantly and uh, dignified, and that's why I can't wait for too long. That's Jacqueline Genkel. She's a youthful-looking 77-year-old. I met her at her home in Paris. She appears physically rather frail, but she's very sharp and feisty. She's a member of ADMD. That's the main group pushing for the right to die in dignity in France. As a volunteer, she supports and advises people, and she has accompanied people to Switzerland. 
but also as someone who's worried about her own declining health and being unable to manage her own end of life here in France, well, she set herself a date for going to Switzerland to die. But then life got in the way. I had actually made the, decided on the 20th of July, 2020. I liked that date, and I said, that's going to be my date, okay. And in March or April or something, my daughter-in-law sent me a photograph of that thing where you see that, that she's pregnant, you know, and I see that, and then I talk to her, she says, well... The baby's due in November, and I thought, oh, well, I can't really not wait for the birth of the baby. And then what happened? The baby was born on the day of my birthday, on the 28th of October, and they called the little boy Jack. Everybody calls me Jack. I mean, nobody can give you a present like that, and you can't refuse it. It was, it was beautiful seeing that little boy, and he's going to be one now. So now I have another thing I, to wait for him to be one, and then I have to wait for this. And I, I don't really want to wait for so many things anymore. So you haven't set a date, but what is your plan then? I don't want to be put in a nursing home. I don't want to end up in the emergency ward of some hospital. I don't either want to be declared as a um, crazy person or whatever. And so you have to go to Switzerland. Yeah. The day I decide, I just have to be accepted, which I will be. I have to prove that I suffer from different age-related problems. I don't have to have a terminal disease, but I have to be able to argue my case. Uh, I can't just say, look, uh, I'm fed up of life. Having registered with associations in Switzerland, when the time comes, what happens? Uh, I will go to Basel because... Um, I have this very good friend who's the president of Life Circle in Basel. So it's nicer to go with a friend around me because I'm not sure whether anybody of my family will be there. So at least I'll have my friend. And um, she asks a few questions. Um, it's just, you know, for, for the police. Afterwards, the police comes. I just have to lie down and uh, then uh, there's a drip. And I have to be able to turn the tap of the drip myself. Because euthanasia or um, assisted death through a doctor is not allowed, so it's assisted suicide, meaning the patient himself or herself has to be able to actually either swallow a lethal uh, potion or turn the tap of a drip. Once you've done that, it's about three minutes and you're dead. Totally pain-free. It's like, you know, uh, total anesthesia. That's what the vets have been doing with dogs for the past, I don't know how many years. You bring your dog to the vet, you see how he falls asleep, he falls asleep peacefully. Why is that denied to human beings? You've accompanied people to oh. Switzerland? Yeah, many. Yeah. Well, not always to Switzerland, but towards. I've advised people. I have one right now. I mean, he's been wanting to die for the past four years and he's still alive. And he, and he keeps coming and talking and... Okay. Don't you see the irony of the fact there are you wanting to end it all and yet you're helping people? But how long can I do that for? There we have the, the question. I mean, if I knew that I could uh, hold on for I don't know how long and, and things would stay the way they are, I would feel reassured and I would go on doing what I'm doing. thing is that I'm scared by what I see. I mean, when I go and visit people in uh, French hospitals, if I visit people in nursing homes and I see the way they're treated, and especially during COVID, I mean, it was just horrible. I mean, the patients weren't asked if they wanted to live or to die. The doctors decided for them. 
We know here in France that there have been cases where clearly, even though it's not authorised, François Mitterrand, I mean, there are some people I clearly... You've helped people. Yeah. The thing is, is that it's very risky to do that. I mean, I did it in cases where the patient was obviously not capable of traveling anymore. The situation was totally desperate. The patient was suffering, and nobody was doing anything about it. So are I, you saying that you administer drugs? No. Personally, I never did that. So but what form does your help take? I found the right doctors. There are doctors who do it. In France, what kind of evolution have you seen, Jacqueline, in terms of attitudes towards assisted suicide? They announce, 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 but it doesn't happen. And I think the reason is also because uh, old people and sick people uh, can't walk, take to the streets like the Gilets Jaunes and march for their rights. And so there's nobody really uh, defending their rights. Nobody seems to care. I mean, nobody speaks about the, the rights of the old. And there's nothing particularly nice about being old. But what is the alternative? The alternative is death, meaning it's a choice. And the choice should be given to every single person. The only thing I'm campaigning for is not for euthanasia, it's not for assisted suicide. I'm more for life than for death. But I'm for living well and dying well. And a dignified life also includes a dignified death, in my eyes. If I prefer to be hooked on machines and uh, to be fed artificially, it's also my choice. If they have no more quality of life, and that really does depend on very different things. It really is about deciding what you do with your own body. It is about control. It should not be for the doctors to decide. It's a philosophical issue. And it's uh, about democracy. It's about liberty. Every constitution in Europe says that you should be able to choose uh, your religion, the way you live, your sexuality, everything except your death. Why? So looking for liberty there. Where are we in terms of an end-of-life law in France then? Well, there was a bill presented before Parliament in April this year, but just five MPs from the main opposition party, the right-wing Republicans, managed to block it completely. At the end of September, a cross-party group of MPs pushed for that same assisted dying bill to be put back on the political agenda. It's unlikely that it will appear before next year's presidential election, but chances are it will be an issue during the campaign. The hard-left France unbowed party, the Greens and the Socialist candidate and Hidalgo are all in favour of legalising assisted suicide. But obviously not everyone's in favour. No, some MPs still feel very strongly that the current passive euthanasia law is sufficient. According to Genkel, there's a lot of heavy lobbying going on by, for example, pharma companies, but also privately owned hospices, which are owned by just a handful of French families. Now, it's difficult to gauge exactly how influential they are in Parliament, but it is true that having terminally ill patients in nursing homes does generate revenue uh, and that last year of life can be very, very costly, medically speaking. The bottom line for supporters of the right to die in dignity is that assisted suicide is already happening in France. Either people who can afford it are going abroad or some are getting access to French doctors who secretly perform between two and 4,000 acts of euthanasia each year. So it's a risky business. It's very unfair and the current situation is hypocritical.
We've come to the end of the program. Spotlight on France is a production of Radio France International. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Do send in your comments or questions to spotlight.france at rfi.fr. Or find us on Instagram at Spotlight on France. We're taking a break. It's the Toussaint, or All Saints school holidays. We'll be back in November on Thursday, the 18th of November. And until then, you can find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye, Allison. Bye-bye, Sarah. Bye-bye, Sarah.